Here's everything you might have missed in Andor Episode 11. Welcome back, you Cassian Fandors, to our weekly breakdown of Andor. The penultimate episode of Andor is less of a nail-biter than last week's thrilling prison break, but it still ratchets up the tension for next week's season finale. We're gonna break it all down for you in just a moment, but to do so, we have to spoil what happens in the latest Andor. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're worried about that sort of thing, leave now before it's too late. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Andor episode 11, titled Daughter of Ferex, is a genuinely mournful affair. The life that so many of our characters knew at the beginning of the season is gone. Some of the characters themselves are gone as well, both spiritually like Bix and physically like Marva. The trajectory of all of their lives has been irrevocably changed, all because a couple security guards got too drunk one night at a strip club. Now, what follows is a domino effect of human misery as the Empire's oppression comes into sharper and sharper relief. The episode begins on a somber note, transitioning from Cassian and Melshi dodging the TIE patrols on Narkina 5 to Ferex, where Marva's dead body is solemnly removed by the Daughters of Ferex. Star Wars has always been a story about legacy and family, and Marva clearly made a massive impact on the people of Ferex. And also, it's absolutely crushing to see how sweet little B2 is unable to process her passing. I don't want to be alone. I want Mama Marva. Now, the tradition on Ferrix is to brick your loved ones, basically their bodies cremated, mixed with mortar and stone dust, then formed into a brick. Those who laid the foundations of the past become a literal part of the foundations of the future. It's an important tradition to preserve, especially under a fascist regime like the Empire, which seeks to stamp out cultural traditions and cultivate a climate of fear and homogeneity. This also bears a striking resemblance to a project known as the People's Pyramid in the UK. Musicians Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty, also known as the KLF, are building a pyramid made from bricks forged from human remains. Whether or not they'll actually complete this feat remains to be seen, but Andor's version somehow seems a bit less lurid. Moving on, Dedra Miro and the ISB think they're playing 4D chess here by letting the people of Ferex hold a funeral for Marva on Rick's Road. As you may recall, Rick's Road is a place synonymous with bloodshed and resistance here on Ferex. It's where Marva's husband was hanged and left to rot. Why? For the crime of trying to stop his fellow citizens from antagonizing a battalion of clone troopers. It's also where Cassian attacked said trooper so he could take his father down, which is what sent him to prison the first time around. As we know from the trailers, though, this time the people of Ferex won't stand for the Empire's oppression. Dedra says she wants to put them in a box, stand back, and watch. Well, they probably won't like what they see, unless arm resistance is exactly what they're hoping for. For now, though, the Empire feels like they have the upper hand. Not only do they have a superior military presence, but their man Korv is staking out Marva's house from the nearby coffee shop. But the Empire aren't the only ones searching for Cassian. Cinta is undercover here as a space barista serving up intel and intelligentsia in equal measure. But Marva isn't the only daughter of Ferex in need of Cassian's help. Everyone's favorite mama's boy will need to show up in the finale and tell the Empire, Bix, please, because his friend is still in their clutches. And dear Lord, does she look like she's been through the ringer. Between her flashbacks to Dr. Gorse's nightmare version of Kids Bop and repeated interrogations, she is barely keeping it together. I mean, sure, she could probably confirm that Anto Krieger isn't Axis, but she seems like a shell of her former self at this point. 
Now, back on Narkeena 5, we meet a pair of Caredian fishermen named Freedy and Dewey, at least according to the credits. The Caredians first appeared in Rogue One, as with characters like Saised Ock, a member of Saw Gerrera's partisans. These fishermen use a motion-activated net launcher to trap the pair of prisoners desperate to hijack their quad jumper. Which, if you remember from The Force Awakens, it's not exactly a reliable escape route. Now, in this scene, we're led to believe that these fishermen are selfish, self-interested people. We hear them grumble about how the prison poisoned their waters, ruining their fishing trade, making it difficult for them to feed their families. But ultimately, we see these Caredians just have a very dark sense of humor. They're toying with Cassian and Melshi. They know the Empire are the real ones behind their misery and give them a much-needed ride back to Niamos. But first, let's take a detour to Coruscant, where everyone is down bad. Vel is feeling deeply unappreciated by Luthen and company, flexing on Clea that she delivered them Aldani. And now she also has some valuable info about Cassian's impending return to Ferrix as well. While Clea doesn't have quite as searing of a monologue as Luthen did last episode, she does cut Vel down to size a bit when she reminds her of the hard work and scale of the network that she manages on a daily basis. Luthen may be the mastermind, but without Clea, this whole thing would fall apart. Back at the Mothma residence, Vel finds that her family members aren't doing much better. Lita's getting deep into some sort of Chandrillan fundamentalist group that involves repetitive chanting about the old ways that bind us. Apparently, this movement was an issue back home and now has found new roots here on Coruscant, illustrating the ways that theocracy and fascism can intertwine. All Mon can do to keep from crying is to grit her teeth and bear it, with her husband Perrin treating her like utter crap and her daughter Leda constantly shooting her dirty looks, Mon has no one to turn to at home except for Vel. The information is nothing that we as the audience don't already know, but it's heartbreaking to see Mon on the verge of tears and see how heavily the stress of funding this revolution has weighed on her. And while she doesn't mention Davos Skulden and his proposal by name, it seems like Mon is coming to terms with the fact that his offer is one that she can't refuse. Meanwhile, back at the Karn residence, Cyril gets a late-night call from a character I was just delighted to see again, my boy Linus Mosk. That's right, folks, he's back! So... The former Primor officer is now working at a factory on Morlana 1 doing smelting work. Unfortunately for him, the factory only has pockets, pockets of good Wi-Fi, and they aren't fomenting, fomenting ideal conditions for communication. It's a real who's on first moment. And while Cyril's mother is deeply unimpressed by this frantic late night call, Cyril is elated to find out that Cassian's mother died and his arch nemesis is heading back to his home world. Now, based on Cyril stealing his mom's credits from the safe, something tells us he'll also make his way back to Ferrix to make some deeply ill-advised decisions in the season finale next week. As for Luthen, we learn that he was off-world on Segramilo paying a visit to Saw Gerrera. Once again, we see two tubes, the Tognath mercenary out front. Now, you may remember this particular guy as part of Saw's rebel forces in Rogue One and Enfys Nest's Cloud Riders in Solo, A Star Wars Story. Next, we briefly see Luthen hand over a mysterious weapon that kinda looks like a lightsaber. Now, I'm not saying that Luthen is a secret Jedi, but maybe he's just a big collector, a big fan, he's a lot of those kyber crystals, so only time will tell. We can also see a large white yeti-looking creature in the background, and this is Morof, a person we saw as part of Saw's partisans in Rogue One. And once again, there are a pair of X-Wings out front, alluding to that air support Luthen originally sought Saw out for. Now, speaking of which, Saw has apparently come around on Luthen's Spellhouse proposal, provided they're allowed to loot to their heart's content. 
Now, what follows is one of Luthen's most dangerous gambits yet. He tells this frantic freedom fighter the truth, or at least a version of the truth. Luthen reveals that the ISB knows about Krieger's plan, and he's prepared to sacrifice Krieger to avoid burning his source, Lonnie Young. It's unclear if this is Luthen taking an unnecessary risk, but clearly he feels the need to gamble with his own life as part of the grim calculus he conducts every day. Deciding who to sacrifice, who to trust, when to throw two tubes under the bus, it's the mark of a true leader, and it shows why Luthen's been so adept at running this operation so far. Sometimes you can send an agent, other times situations require a more personal touch, especially when said situation runs an extremist rebel group with air support. For the greater good. Call it what you will. Let's call it war. But Luthen's luck is clearly a finite resource. You can just tell something terrible is about to happen the way the conversation with Clea is shot. It's nighttime at the gallery, and we can see some familiar sights like a Jedi Temple Guard mask, Padme's headpiece, the Starkiller armor, a Gungan shield, Plo Koon's anti-ox mask, and some other deep-cut Star Wars lore. But there's also an Aztec calendar which raises all types of questions about how it got there. Maybe it was part of the Indiana Jones estate sale, but I digress. That belongs in a museum. Museum. Moving on, Clea's perspective is framed almost like a horror movie. You expect Michael Myers or someone to be lurking just behind her. But no, the danger is actually from the massive Cantwell-class arrestor cruiser that appears right behind the Fondor. Now, this particular Imperial ship was based on Colin Cantwell's original concept art for the Imperial Star Destroyer, hence the name Cantwell-class. Originally designed in the mid-1970s, this ship finally appeared in canon, briefly in Solo, a Star Wars story, and then again in a deleted scene. But now we get to see it in all of its satellite dish-covered glory. And here it's designed specifically to incapacitate enemy ships with its powerful tractor beams. It's equally impressive to see the sheer variety of scams and countermeasures that Luthen has at his disposal. From generating a fake transponder ID, to destroying the tractor beam with secret flechette launchers, to his wild-ass lasers that cut through TIE fighters like a hot lightsaber through Luke's hand, he's got an answer for everything. And those lasers looked an awful lot like supersized lightsabers, so maybe that's why he's such an ardent collector of kyber crystals and Jedi ephemera. The Imperial officer Elk's stunned silence speaks volumes when he sees just how thoroughly he was outplayed. Of course, this was the closest Luthen's come so far to being caught by the Empire since his escape on Ferrix. What this means for Axis remaining undercover and off the ISB's radar remains to be seen, but it's only a matter of time until Luthen's luck does finally run out. As for Cassian, we catch up with him back on Niamos, which is now suspiciously devoid of tourists. Well, there are at least two people there sleeping in Cassian's old bungalow, where he returns to to pick up his credits from the Aldani job, his pistol, and his copy of Nemec's Manifesto, which apparently is also an audiobook read by the author. Tyranny required. After having the world's worst phone call, Cassian parts ways with Melshi. Cassian's prison break compatriot is adamant that they need to split up to ensure they can spread the truth about what was really happening in the prison on Narkina 5. But don't worry, because we know they'll see each other again someday. Melshi was part of the crew that sprang Jin Erso from jail on Wobani in Rogue One. <laughs> For now, though, Cassian looks sadly down at the ground and then out at the ocean, and this is a brutal bookend for his journey as a rebel. Here, Cassian looks out over the water as clouds obscure the sun. In Rogue One, Cassian and Jin also look out over the water, waiting to die in an explosion caused by the Death Star's laser ensconced in blinding light. As for what lies immediately ahead, we'll just have to wait and see, but a one-way ticket to Ferrix absolutely sounds about right.
Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's everything we spotted and wanted to delve deeper into in this week's Andor. With one episode to go, we can't wait to see how they cap off this tremendous season of Star Wars storytelling. For now, though, tell us, what did you think of this episode? Did you spot anything that we missed? Where is Andor? Yes! Yes, that's it! Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com. Thank you.